and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Hello and welcome to another Conversation on Climate. Today, I'm coming to you from outside the world-famous London Business School here in London. We've just had a great conversation with Sir Andrew Lickerman, former transformative leader of London Business School during his time as Dean, former main board director at Barclays Bank, Knight of the Realm for his time serving Her Majesty's Treasury, and generally fantastic, inspirational speaker, leader, and management thinker. We've had a great conversation where we were discussing his more recent works upon decision-making, how humans come to make decisions and how decisions can be constructed and analysed to try and develop better outcomes. We take decision-making and we move it from general conceptual framework and we apply it to organizations and to society at large. And we put all of that together in the context of climate change and the energy transition. Personally, I found Sir Andrew Lickerman's insights to be absolutely fascinating. And I hope that uh, you do too. Thank you. Dean Lickerman, thank you so much for uh, coming and speaking to us today. I think it's fair to say you've been an absolutely transformational leader to London Business School uh, during your, your time as Dean, where you took things from the financing and building and acquisition of Marlborough Town Hall, of the expansion of all the programmes, including the programme that I, I took, and also getting like the Financial Times number one ranking for the, for the MBA school. Like, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal achievements. But on top of that, um, you're also a Knight of the Realm. You're former main board director of Barclays. Like, you've had an absolutely remarkable, remarkable career. Could you perhaps give us just a couple of minutes on your journey towards this incredible life you've led and continue to lead? Well, thank you very much. You've said some very kind things. I should say, as Dean, I can tell you now, and I'm not being polite, I relied very, very much on an enormous number of people around me. So it's not my... Anything I achieved, I achieved with other people, unambiguously. Um, well, look, I've, I've, I've had a lot of luck um, in my life. I've, I've been able to do a lot of different things. So I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in the public sector, I've worked in academic life, and I feel very comfortable moving between the three. And I like very much having the combination. And that's uh, what being at the London Business School has meant for my life. It's meant an enormous help to me in being able to move from one thing to the other and to move from one area to the other. So what I've been working on all through my academic life has changed a lot. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is very much the latest uh, chapter in, in, a, in a saga of you know, many different parts. And along those various steps along the road, you have had to make some very difficult decisions, I am sure. Decision-making on a very um, surface um, analysis is a very simple concept. It's like something, of course, we all intuitively know what a decision is. But you spend a little bit of time kind of scratching the surface, you realize, well, what really is a decision? Is it like there's big decisions, like what school you go to, what job you take, they're clearly decisions. Also the little decisions of like, well, do I cross the road at this point or whatever? And there's also the decisions that you make by not making decisions. So just to frame the, the, the whole discussion going forward, what is a decision? Okay. So look, why I got involved in this is because 
in my work in, in academic life, in the public sector, the private sector, lots of different organizations, what struck me is that people talked about the importance of good judgment um, in making difficult choices. And so I became very intrigued by this. Um, and because I'd worked already on things that were difficult to measure, I thought to myself, all right, how would you know that somebody has good judgment when they make a difficult choice, a difficult decision? You know, what constitutes good judgment? You know, how do you know other people have got it if you're going to hire them? So faced with that, I did a little bit of digging on this and I discovered that the, although there was quite a lot, there's a lot on decision making in a kind of straightforward way together with the mathematics and so on, looking at this highly complex issue of how do you bring everything together of the individual, the situation, the variables involved in, in a complex choice, what guidance can one give? And I found there was almost nothing written on this. And so intrigued by that, I said, all right, it's a voyage of discovery and here I go. So that's how I got into this particular area. My own um, studies of decision-making have primarily been around um, game theory yeah. and, and economics, yeah. really numbers-based. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the alternative approaches that, that yes. you're, you're taking to it? Well, look, what, what my work does is not to say that's all wrong and, and I'm better. What it does is to say, we need to incorporate all that, but we need to understand the, just how complicated and individual it is when we make a difficult choice. You know, let's say, you know, the question of which school to send the children to. You know what I mean? So, you know, in terms then of um, making a choice like that, one's gone to look at the, the question of the particular situation. All right, there's various things you can do to try and stack the cards in your favour. And I don't think it's a question just of saying, here are a collection of variables, list of pros, list of cons, and then let's decide. It isn't like that. We know it isn't. And so you've got to understand what the weighting is, you know, what, just what the particular circumstances. The child, what does the child, you know, is, where is the child going to flourish? I mean, I mention that because that's a kind of very individual choice that many people have to make. And it illustrates, I think, also in the world of work, how we're often faced with things that we've never had before um, as, a, as a choice. And my aim, therefore, is to try, in terms of the phrase, stack the cards in one's favour of making a choice that one is actually feels, yes, that was the right choice to make, that's a successful choice in terms of the objectives I set for it. Far too often you have decisions being valued in hindsight on the basis of whether it was a success or a failure. Exactly. Plenty of other things that can make a decision, a good decision at the time, um, ultimately not pan out. That's, that's nothing, nothing to do with whether it was a good decision or not. So, uh, but perhaps could you take us through your, your framework for, sure. for analysis? Yes, sure. And can I just go back to your point about lots of other things involved and outcomes? I mean, one of the difficulties of looking at this is that you can do everything right and it can still come out wrong. And similarly, you can fail to do a number of things and it can come out right. And that's because, and this is something I'm very keen to emphasize, as it were, a lot of choices are, you know, if they come out right, luck often has a great deal to do with it. You know, there's a number of things that may be nothing to do with one's own efforts that, that uh, determine the outcome. So there's no guarantee that this will be okay because things can get in the way. 
All I'm saying is one tries to stack the cards in one favour to do the right thing in order to have the best chance of getting it right. That's what this is about. Okay, so the framework basically says, look, there are a number of elements to judgment uh, that one can pin down to say, if I go through a process, let me try and look at these elements. So number one is the question of what one takes in, what one reads and sees and hears. Um, and people are better at that, but some people are better at that than others. So the question of what one's taking in is a, the start of the process, if you like. Then there's the question of who and what one trusts. So we rely on other people. We rely on the sources of information. So trust is the second important element in the judgment framework. Number three is what one knows about the particular thing that one's trying to choose. So if one's done something 50 times before, we know there's a pretty good chance you know most of what, what needs to be known about it. But if this is the first time, and this is of course where most of us have most difficulty, if it's the first time, you don't know much about it. And therefore all the other elements then come into play. The fourth element is to do with one's feelings and beliefs. One approaches any choice with a set of feelings and beliefs, values, biases, that act as a filter, if you like, for all the other sources of information in order to say, all right, you know, what does this look like as a, as a kind of choice? And some people have very strong feelings, uh, some people have less strong feelings about it, but whatever it is, I believe that one has to be aware of the feelings and beliefs one has, the values one holds, the biases one may have, in order to have the best chance of making a good choice. Finally, there's the, the process of making the choice itself, the judgment. That brings together all the information one's got, that helps one to say, all right, have I gone through the right process? Have I, for example, looked at all the possible variables here? Have I excluded some? Perhaps because I didn't like the look of them to start with or something like that. So the way in which the choice is made is, is the fifth element. Now, today we're talking mainly about forming a view about something, an opinion, rather than making a decision. In making a decision, there's a sixth element, which is, all right, so can I deliver? I mean, not just question, is this a great idea, but can it be delivered? So those are the six elements that I've been working with. The one particular uh, point that I've that, that in, in reading on your, uh, your materials that was of particular interest to me was how execution comes after choice. Because there, in a lot of cases, you, your choice should be influenced by whether it can be executed or not? Absolutely. That's, that's a question. Yeah, so, so why, why is that the particular order? Why, why shouldn't it be execution? Is it possible? And then you make your decision. Yeah. So my framework is not a kind of rigid set of rules about how you do go about these things. In, in terms of the choice one makes, execution, including the risk involved in execution, will be an important part of the choice. But it's not just an important part of the choice, it's a question of actually whether you can do it. So it's both, it, it applies in both the fifths and the sixth elements. But there are maybe many reasons why one has to go back and loop back, having perhaps looked at a number of op potential options, saying, wait a minute, let's re-look at the information. Let's re-look at the, how good the, and reliable the sources are that we were using. So it's not a kind of one, two, three, four, five, and that's the end of the story. One, one may have many different goes at this and can come at it in a different order. As I say, it's a framework, not a sort of rigid blueprint.
So kind of moving on from uh, kind of an individual level to an organizational level, I myself have, have been kind of working in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of renewable world and finding myself uh, making decisions based on what has turned out to be quite unsound information. As over the kind of 10 or 11 years I've been, been working away at this, uh, the, the debate has turned further and further away from whether there is a climate crisis sure. into how do we deal with it. And in any of the, the circles that I move in, in any of the, 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 the things that I read, any of the media that I read, any of the feeds that feeds I see, it's all reinforcing of this. The debate is over, the debate is over, the debate is over. And then I find myself going into meetings with this frame in my head, this idea in my head, the debate's over, of course. And you, you talk to people, but the debate's not over. Because <laughs> they're in an entirely different world. And their world is, that, you know, the argument is still, is still happening. Or, e or even if the argument on whether climate change is happening or not, it's whether they need to do anything about it. And finding that in going into organizations and going into kind of into governments, um, you can find kind of at one layer, the decision makers, or at least the headline decision makers, um, have come to a decision. They've said, yes, we want to do something about climate change. But then you go into the people who are actually executing them. Yeah. And there's something entirely different. There's entirely different messaging going along. How do you influence them? How do you get into how do you, how do you How do you take a decision from the top and kind of take it down throughout in the organization? Well, look, in, in some sense, this is a much bigger question. It's about the whole nature of organizations. And obviously, some organizations are very good at implementation, you know, because they're well set up, people are motivated, you know, they, you, you know when a kind of organization seems to be operating pretty well and when it's dysfunctional, you know, when things don't happen, when people are not sure what they're supposed to be doing. So I think you raise really a much broader question about how well run the organization is. Now, for me, why... Another reason why I'm so interested in judgment is it does seem to me that if an organization can kind of get this right, in other words, to devolve responsibility to a level where people are able to make choices on behalf of the organization without endlessly referring up, which I mean, and on the other hand, have not got so much responsibility that it's all chaos all over the place. You know, this is a, a very important element, it seems to me, of, a, of the definition of a well-run organization. You know, is it able to make judgments and are people able to make judgments in a way that benefits the organization and actually takes the organization to where it wants to go? Or is it a kind of chaotic uh, situation where people are, are, you know, working against each other and so on? That's why I'm saying I think this, you raise a, a point about how well managed the organization is more generally and not just on, on choice making. I see this particular phenomena, particularly in the public sector, yes. you know, where you have yeah. um, you know, elected politicians yeah. who are elected upon particular mandates yes. and you have the civil servants who are absolutely going to outlast them <laughs> and are doing things to, to preserve their own careers and doing things because that's the way that they believe it should be done. You obviously spent some time within, I did. within, within the civil service. I did. So that's, uh, I did. And so I, I can declare my bias is so I'm in favor of, you know, I, I think the public sector, the bit I worked, in, worked extremely well. And that, <laughs> so I'm biased on that as I declare my interest here. Um, well, look, I mean, in the public sector, I think a big difference that people perhaps don't realize who have never worked in the public sector is that it's much more rule-bound than the private sector. You've got laws, you've got regulations, you know, you can't just do what you feel like. You know what I mean? There are lots of elements to do with that. There's also the question of accountability. So everything's got to be much more 
carefully set out in terms of the way things are done. And then there's the question of risk. In the public sector, you know, it's asymmetrical. If you take a big risk and it goes right, you get a kind of pat on the back. But if it goes wrong, you're in real trouble. So I think, you know, one has to recognize that decision taking in the public sector is different in that way. Recognizing the need for accountability, the need to keep within the rules, which a private sector organization doesn't have. You know, it doesn't, I mean, it has its own rules and so on, you keep within the law, but there's much more freedom of maneuver. And so if the public sector seems rather sort of constipated sometimes in the way in which it takes decisions. I mean, uh, there's a reason for that. It's not accidental. What I'm struggling most uh, with in, in dealing with, with public sector organisations, it isn't the rules. It isn't the regulations. It's the norms. Yeah. It's how people have always done things. Yeah. So just taking a very simple example of the planning, yeah. you know, planning for, for a wind farm. Yeah. You have had planners who very understandably, for very good reasons, yeah. have been refusing the construction of tall vertical yeah. structures in, in rural areas. Yes. Very good reasons. Yeah. But now you've got wind turbines which are tall vertical structures which are going to be built, built in, in rural areas. Their norms are, no, we say no to this. And yeah. regardless of what the politicians say, their natural bias is, no, we don't want this. Well, that comes back to my perception about risk, you know what I mean? And I'm sure that lies behind it. I mean, in, in one minute, can I just take you to task on this? Because when you say the natural bias is leave things as they are, I think that's, you know, all of us have got a bit of a natural bias on the status quo. And that's one of the reasons I think that people who have you know, difficulty in coping with the notion of what climate change is, because they feel, well, you know, I see the world around me and it's kind of the way it is. You know, what's, what's not to like about this? You know, where, where, what's the problem here? Um, and I think that's the, the set of biases that almost anybody has. I mean, if a, if a public servant has got a bias which says, I am going to maintain the way things are regardless of anything else. I mean, that's not good public service, frankly. You know what I mean? Because if you're under political pressure not to allow a wind farm, if you're under pressure economically not to allow whatever it is, you know what I mean? That's absolutely fine. But I can't possibly say, you know what I mean, that, that somebody, it's okay if somebody simply has a bias for the status quo and that is the end of the story. That doesn't sound to me like a very good a very good situation. If I, I fully agree with you, yeah. although it's uh, all too common. <laughs> People do like things as yeah. they are yeah. or as they were or as they believe through yeah. rose-tinted glasses. Right. Well, I know, I, you know, I, I've seen, look, I, this is not my, my main territory, but I've seen just how difficult it is for people to accept the idea of wind farms near them. You know what I mean? It's all very well having it somewhere else, but not near me, you know. So, I mean, I can understand that, especially in rural areas, people feel very strongly about the countryside and so on. And again, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying, you know, again, coming back to judgment, as it were, then there's a question of, so how do you trade these off? That is a question of judgment. Okay, so moving from the, the human micro level to the institutional level to the more kind of macro, macro, big, big scale type questions. If you can treat conceptually humanity as a group, um, looking at uh, your framework of the decision-making framework and the climate crisis emergency and uh, the climate transition, I guess. What particular parts of the decision-making process of us as a, as a unit um, are we, we falling down on? Well, look, I think this is a really tough area in two or three ways. Looking at the question, for example, of trust, 
I mean, one of the key questions is who can you trust and what you can, can you trust in this debate? I mean, people are passionate about it on both sides, you know, uh, and bearing that in mind, understandably, a lot of people who are not passionate are quite cautious. They say, I'm not quite sure who I can believe here. And I think that, sadly, is one of the aspects of the debate that makes it more difficult for people to make up their own minds really well about what's going on. Because they hear the passion and they wonder, you know, is, what's this based on? Is this okay? Can I believe this? And similarly, you know, they see the evidence, but the evidence is often brought to them, you know, in order to prove something. So I think there's been an absence of those who, you know, are credible in that way. And for those who are uncommitted, therefore, they can go to and say, I trust this, that's actually okay. But it's been, the, the debate has been in very, very emotional terms, understandably. Um, but that emotion, I think, has made it more difficult for the uncommitted to know exactly where they stand. So that's one aspect. And the other is to do with the feelings and beliefs, because they have strong feelings, as it were, about it. That can get in the way, then, of taking in the evidence, making sure they understand what the arguments are. So I think those two things in particular, in terms of the judgment framework, have made it more difficult to, for people to take a, a balanced view and to say, yes, now I know what's going on and I now understand it and I've now thought it through. One of the, the kind of the interesting aspects of the of the debate has been, at least historically, on one side there's been a very well organised, um, very well well funded campaign yeah. uh, that's been kind of casting doubts, yeah. and then on the other side there's been an absolutely diverse and disparate group of people who've been running mainly on passion. If you're a a wealthy company or a wealthy state, yeah. you can be a very well organised. If you're yes. a group of people, yeah. um, it's it's that bit more difficult. Which is why the likes of you know Greta Thunberg, who broke through on the basis yes. of authenticity yeah. and passion, yes. uh, was such a strong advocate. So I think that a lot of people, not sure where they stood on this, not sure what they felt, looked at her and said, look, she seems to have thought it through. She believes very strongly on the basis of what she's seen as a young person coming to this. And so they felt, actually, you know, this looks okay to me. You know, so I think the, the fact that somebody is so certain when they are uncertain is quite reassuring in a way. So I think a number of people have felt, actually, that sounds okay. And other people, on the other hand, have felt, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Does she really understand what's going on? You know, has she really understood all the issues? And, you know, has she got an agenda? So she's also been caught up, I think, in that debate. Um, but you can see why, I can see why, in an area which is so complicated and so fraught and so difficult, somebody coming fresh to this and apparently being so certain has an appeal. So that's kind of the, the second part of your, yeah. your framework when you're talking yeah. about the, you know, the people that you yeah. trust. But one of the, the, the major issues um, is the first part of your framework, which is the, the information. Yes. There's so much information out there. You could spend all day, every day, yeah. just keeping up with what's going on on a yes. global basis and still not get through it all. Like, how do you sift through the, the wall of yeah. information. Well, I think it's incredibly difficult and, and we know exactly, as you say, there is a, there's a superfluity of information in a sense about this. But in a sense, the difficulty, that, that adds to the difficulty 
because we then have to make the choice as well as seeing is it of good quality. So I guess what most people would do understandably is to say, all right, let me go back to the question of who I trust, who's, who's expert in this field. Let me go to them. Let me see what they've made of it. And if it looks as if they've made, the, they've done the sifting for me, I will go with what they say. And for example, I guess that's why David Attenborough has such a huge following, because he looks like somebody who has looked at the evidence carefully and has come to a conclusion and therefore carries a lot of weight. And I can see why that might be so. Um, so, you know, as you say, this is an issue which suffers from, you know, too much information, if you like, and, and a lack of clarity about, you know, what is exactly relevant. So it's very tough if one doesn't know about the scientific basis and, you know, all the implications of this. You then have to rely on intermediaries, and this is where the trust comes in. Yeah. And there's a very great variety of quality of intermediaries. Yeah. And there are intermediaries who have their own biases and their own yes. agendas. Very difficult for anybody to filter through that. Well, I think also, and it, it, it applies, of course, in many areas of our lives, the notion of the confirmation bias. You know, we're looking for evidence which confirms what we already believe. And we do that in many different areas. Look, we're human beings, you know, we haven't got infinite amounts of time to think about absolutely everything. And it's very nice to think of something that confirms your own belief. But it is a bias, and one has to understand, as it were, that just because something confirms one's beliefs, it isn't necessarily true, therefore. And there's also um, the problem of... Like, as you said, like you sit around here and you look around and go, this is beautiful, what's going on? There's no, there's no problems out there. But if you do spend a little bit of time looking at what's happening in other parts of the world, yes. like, you know, the, the heat wave in the Indian yes. subcontinent right now, like the, the, the yes. you know, famines, uh, droughts, it's been... The world's in a, in a difficult place, it's in a different, difficult position. Um, how do we get that, the broader questions of humanity, like, and, and caring for, for not just your next-door neighbour, but your neighbour on the other side of the world. How do we, how do we get that message across? Well, uh, this is a tough one. I mean, really, in terms of saying, you know, how does one get a message across? Um, if one says, all right, I'm trying to find the best view I can about this, then getting a message, in a sense, is a slightly different agenda because it says, actually, I've made up my mind and I want to tell other people. Um, if one then saying, all right, so, you know, how do I tell other people? My uh, suggestion would be to say, what is it that people have a problem over? You know, what is it exactly that's going on here? Because if one then analyzes what the nature of the problem is, then one has a chance of addressing it. So coming back again to the question of our old friends, trust and bias, you know what I mean? One needs to find people who are trusted, more people perhaps who are trusted for good reason. One needs to say, what exactly is going on in people's minds here? Why are people saying that? Is it because they have a clear view, an unbiased view, or do they have an agenda? So I think one applies the same analytic skills one would to anything else to this issue, but also chooses, as I say, carefully the question of, you know, let's see who's talking about this. 
in order to persuade people, if one's trying to persuade, that this and that is so and, and they ought to believe a certain, what they don't at the moment, if you like. But I do think it comes back to the question of saying, why is it that people don't believe? And I, my, I, that's the starting point I, I would take, rather than simply saying, I'm going to beat you over the head until you agree with what I say. So we're, this is a, I'm, I'm not going to say a unique um, challenge, but it certainly has, presents its own particular particular issues. Um, have you, what other comparables how can, you, can, you, can you see in, kind of in, in, in human history yeah. that's where we've managed to overcome? Well, I think we just had one. I mean, in a sense, if you go back on vaccines all the way to the 19th century, I mean, this notion that you were going to be injected with an illness, you know, must have been absolutely terrifying for people when this was first mooted. And of course, what happened then is that the doctors involved, you know, injected themselves to prove to people that this was going to be okay and this wasn't a poison. Um, that's the first thing that happened. And then people in authority were encouraged to have vaccines in order to prove that, you know, if they were doing it, therefore other people could do it. So this was the kind of way I think it sort of trickled down in terms of credibility. And we've seen, therefore, in in COVID just now. You know, it's the same thing. A lot of people felt, oh, not quite sure I believe this. I just talked, fun enough, just before we, we uh, talked this afternoon to someone who said that when the vaccine first came out, they did, weren't quite sure about the official pronouncements and they went to the Pfizer website because they felt actually they wanted to look at the scientific evidence that Pfizer had provided, which they felt would be a better basis than being told to be vaccinated. I mean, that's the kind of thing. Now that, you know, that's the, one thinks about vaccines, that seems to me a, a very good analogy in, in many ways. And clearly, you know, people got over vaccine problems, but when leaders came out in Brazil and so on, saying they didn't want vaccines, there was an issue about them. People said, well, I'm not being vaccinated in that case. So leadership, I think, is particularly important in this case. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the CFC ozone layer was another another kind of example exactly. of you know how humanity managed to get together in the face of face of a threat. And of course, the coronavirus is a fantastic example. Yeah. Um, would you be optimistic that that we will be you know facing this with the same same courage, conviction, and uh, we, we, will, we will get to a positive result in the end? Well, one of the difficulties we know about climate change is that it's a lot slower than, than COVID, you know. I mean, it's, uh, thank goodness it's a lot slower. Um, so the, the appearance of a threat is not as imminent, it's not as threatening, apparently, immediately. And that comes back then to the question of people's, you know, pers- being more enthusiastic about the status quo. You know, let's not, well, I know it may come. There's also, of course, the intergenerational issue. Which, I mean, it's all very well for us, but what about the children and grandchildren here? And it's interesting, I remember seeing on the, on the back of one of the London buses, you know, something, I think, I can't remember the exact wording, it said something like, you know, your son doesn't drink and drive, so why are you? Which I thought was rather a good idea, as it were, persuading people that actually the young had it better than they did, you know what I mean? So perhaps, you know, it is a more, it's a tougher call uh, to say, actually, you're doing it for your children and grandchildren in particular, 
because actions you take now are lagged. So, you know, my, my sense is therefore that, you know, maybe that's the, the route through which one can appeal to say you need to be, you know, you need to be responsible. But who would make that appeal? Like, this, this is a, a question of leadership. Who are the leaders who, who, who should, be, should be putting out this message? Is it like David Attenborough or is it, is it our governments? Or, I, maybe or, any or, of them. All of the above, yeah. Maybe, yeah. but I mean, coming back to my point, I think one has to pin down very clearly what is it that people are, feel has not been proven. Where are the barriers? You know what I mean? And you know, a lot of my work is about overcoming barriers by helping people to make informed choices. So again, if one says the choices are not as well informed as they should be, it's a question of making them better informed and finding ways to get to that trust, not just, as I say, you know, just shouting loud. We're moving towards kind of more from the kind of strictly decision making into more leadership. And yes. um, in this kind of climate debate, who do you think the leaders should be? Are we talking governments? What's the role of corporations, big tech, yes. you know, who are, who are actually in a lot of ways being very good role models by, by, by making the proclamations of net zero, not just making proclamations, but actually building things and planting things and, and making, making yes. kind of positive statements and in some ways leading the conversation at the COP, you yes. know, the recent COPs. Well, I mean, I, I, I could argue it's everybody's responsibility you know, that everybody's got to be well-informed about this, has got to understand what the issues are and take the necessary action. And it may be, you know, a parent, as it were, helping a child to understand what's happening. It may be a school helping its pupils, you know. It, I mean, so I think it's not just a question of saying it's the government's responsibility. Um, I think it's, it's something within society, you know, that, that if people are clear about what, what's going on, and they understand what's going on, then it can be taken at every level. And do you think that there's a particular role for, like, what, what role can London Business School, for instance, by that? And when one of the very strong messages yeah. that, that I received from, from you when you were dean uh, was uh, what to make an impact on the yeah. way the world does business. Yeah. You know, that's the ambition of yes. the school. Yeah, so. In this context, in climate change context, what, what role can LBS make? Well, I hope we can do a lot, actually, because, you know, we have the opportunity, not just through the work we do and research we do and so on, but also through the teaching we do and so on. I mean, we have the chance, as it were, to discuss the issues with people who are, will be, important opinion formers in, in the world, you know, and having this discussion seems to be incredibly important. I'll just give you one example. So I, I give an introductory talk to the full-time MBA when they, when they arrive and talking about the role of of ethics in, in the field of financial reporting and so on. And one of the things increasingly I talk about is the role of ESG reporting. You know, what role does this play? What role should it play? And so on. Now, it's important, I think, that people are aware of these things. So I think we can do our bit. Coming back to my theme, everybody can do something that includes the London Business School. Brilliant. Almost a brilliant way of finishing. But what I, what I normally ask um, in any of these interviews is a, a kind of more general question on um, why should people, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are, who are watching, the people who are listening, um, care about you know, your, your particular topic, but particularly on the um, on, on making good yeah. decisions. Yeah 
in the climate world and in leadership in the climate world. Yeah. Why should our you know, listeners and viewers be, be interested in, in, in learning more? Well, look, again, I'm, I'm biased. I'm working on this. Of course, I'm enthusiastic <laughs> about it. And of course, I think everybody should, you know, should, well, I hope people will find it useful. Look, so my thesis is that we all in our lives have difficult choices to make in our everyday lives as well as our working lives. And I think one wants to have the best shot one can on making these difficult choices with outcomes that, you know, meet the objectives one's set. And so, you know, I think looking at judgment is, is really important um, in all aspects of one's life. And so what I'm hoping is that by pinning down a little bit of what this means, and how people can help themselves, you know, they'll end up with a better selection of choices than they would otherwise. There you are. That's my pitch. <laughs> That's very good. But how do you come up with the right objectives, I yeah. suppose, as a starting point? I, I understand that the, this, the steps, the process yeah. to be evaluating against your objectives, but how do you understand what your objectives are? If one is unclear about one's objectives, what one wants to achieve, then that's a bit of a problem in starting, you know. But I'm assuming here that one's got a sense of what those objectives are. Coming back to the iterative process, it could be that having looked through all the possibilities, you've then got to reframe your objectives. That's also possible. But at least this tries to do it in a more systematic manner, a more carefully considered manner than sort of just hoping for the best, as it were. Um, and so I hope that at least takes the theme of the London Business School as a place where it's a bit more rigorous than just hoping for the best. Okay. <laughs> Our audience is going to be in no small part London Business School alumni. Is yeah. there any message you'd like to give to London Business School alumni about being, you know, backing the school? And well, look, first of all, you know, a huge thank you to everybody who has backed the school. Um, you know, it, I mean, I found it immensely encouraging, really, really encouraging to see how keen people were to support the school in every every way and that was really quite brilliant and so look I'm very proud to be a member of this school I'm you know I'm on the faculty I'm doing my work now and so you know thank you my message with thank you for everything you've done please carry on please support us that's <laughs> not you know because I think it's a you know this is a I'm biased again I declare that you know I think it's a great institution and worth supporting. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.